everyone. This is Bex again, your resident podcast uploader for Coach Beard's Book Club. We recently realized that while you've heard us discuss A Wrinkle in Time, The Iron Giant, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and The Beautiful and Damned, you may have missed the first two episodes of the original Coach Beard's Book Club, hosted by Michaela over on our YouTube channel, also called Coach Beard's Book Club. So we wanted to share them over here with our podcast audience as well. While these episodes only feature Michaela's voice, you will notice that Andrea, Marita, and I contributed to the conversation as well. This week we bring you the original episode one, Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. Michaela chose this book because it was the first one we see Ted with in the series when he's on the plane to England. So we hope you enjoy this bonus episode of Coach Beard's Book Club, and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with our discussion of Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I believe in hope. I believe in belief. My name's Michaela, or Oi, if you're Roy Kent. I'm Coach Beard's personal assistant, and we're here to discuss Dharma Bums. If you're here for some, like, film theorist-level discourse, you might very well be in the wrong place. I'm no expert. I'm just gathering the expert's thoughts. I'm kind of like Ted, in a way. I've started something that's way above my pay grade and that I don't know if I can do. So if you think that there is a way that a thought or something I've presented could be improved, let me know in the comments, just remember the rules, be curious, not judgmental. Um, as much as interpretation can be quite loose when looking at a book, there can be still wrong ways to interpret a text, like watching the whole Squid Game and thinking it was about communism and not capitalism, and then arguing with the writer and creator of the show about what his own show was about. See what I mean? We can interpret text any way we like. It doesn't make it correct or the way to be interpreted, um, but it's the conversation that arises from that freedom to interpret the text that we're here for. So Dharma Bums follows Ray Smith in his pursuit of a sort of spiritual journey, if you like, the ups and downs, sometimes literally, um, of going to the mountains to be in complete solitude, um, mainly about Ray's pursuit of what he perceives to be truth or sort of zen solitude. He goes to the mountains on his own for months at a time, he hitchhikes all over the country, and then he returns home to have wild parties with smoking, drinking, sex is like an understatement. Um, and then it's balancing those two things out, the sort of duality of those two things. Now, along with him on this pursuit is Ray's friend Jaffe. Now, Jaffe Ryder is a sort of freer spirit and a sort of mentor towards Ray. I might be way off base, so please let me know in the comments if you think I am, but I really got a distinct impression from Ray that there's a deep sadness in him somewhere that he's not addressing while he's looking for all these other answers, if that makes sense. Uh, for the many things I disliked about the book, such as having more slurs than a TikToker's back catalogue and the stereotyping of Indigenous and Black folks, the slurs, so many slurs, whew, and the misogyny. 
Jesus fucking Christ, the misogyny. A related to Ray's need to exist somewhere away from the sort of rat race of society. So we're going to be looking at the Dharma bums and what's happening in that arc and comparing it to what's going on here at Richmond. Beck says it's the most white American male novel she's ever read. Not to say there are worse ones out there, she's just never read them. According to Jaffe, what we're doing is wrong here because comparisons are odious, but you know, whatever Jaffe. Before we even start, let's address a couple of things. Like the misogyny. This book has more misogyny than those tweets you see of guys explaining things to women where it turned out the women actually wrote the thing in the first place, you know them? It's more misogynistic than that. Dharma Bums and Ted Lasso could not be more different in its treatment of its female characters. Uh, the women in the stories are much more um, three-dimensional, shall we say. Um, Ted isn't a macho dickhead, and while Ray couldn't really be explained as macho, he is indeed misogynistic, like, in every way possible. Um, I think there has to be a sort of unreliable narration going on, because you're telling me that every woman in your life that's ever met you is all they've wanted to do is shag you in your crumbling, sweaty cabin that, I mean, nobody's allowed on the bamboo net floor with their shoes on, right? but it's okay for like 20 sweaty, naked guys that haven't probably washed their arse crack in months all having sex on it. Explain that to me. Sure, Jaffe. We can see that Ted is respectful to women around him from when Keely first came into the locker room, which he sort of shouldn't have been there, and Ted was entirely respectful of her, incredibly nice, could have been really quite rude and made a fool out of her in front of the other guys and did none of that. So we get to see from Ted that sort of has saved the cat moment in the sense that we're like, oh look, a white male character that isn't a misogynistic arsehole. When he covered our like boobs with the tape, at first I was like, oh, what are you doing that for, you know? And then I realised that he wasn't doing it in like a like prudish kind of way, it was, it was more of a respectful kind of way. But like, I have a problem with that because can you explain to me how it's okay for Jamie fucking Tart to cut about with his tits out all over the place, but Kayleigh can't even have a photograph of hers up in the locker room? Hmm? Yeah, free the nipple. The misogyny in Dharma Bums wasn't just a problem for me. Marita says, Kurak's literary treatment of women in the book was one of the biggest stumbling blocks for her as she read. Dharma Bums, after all, is the origin of a phrase, pretty girls make graves. I get where Kurak was headed with the line, but neither he nor Ray seem to have much of a concept as women of people. Agreed. They are, uh, Marita found a great article, which I'll put in the links down in the comment. If I don't, then just remind me. Um, the Antelope Review in 1959, someone called Freedom Champney said of Curac's women, the only real functions are as audience and as erotic furniture, sometimes as providers and meal tickets. And um, yeah, that's pretty much exactly right, Marita says, and I wholeheartedly agree. Um, the second thing I think that we need to talk about in relation to Dharma Bums is the slurs. It also kind of reeks of cultural appropriation at times, but of course the book was of a different time, so we need to take that into consideration. Uh, we can still judge, but we need to take it into consideration. Um, when Ray is people watching, he tends to stereotype people of colour and um, indigenous people. It's uncomfortable to read at point. I think, obviously, we're not here to discuss any sort of religious um, aspects of the book, but I think it's important to look at the way that Ray and Jaffe try to sort of incorporate Western values to Eastern religions and there is a, there's a whole sort of argument around that and whether that be cultural appropriation or not which we'll speak about later. But I think it fits with the duality of Ray's life that him and Jaffe both try to combine Western ways into Eastern religions. Um, it's another thing in Ray's life where he sort of requires a balance, he can't just have one or the other. 
um, which is important, I think. Marita thinks that Dharma bombs can feel cringe-inducingly appropriative at points, and it's tempting to feel like Ray, Jaffe, etc., are all picking and choosing what feels good or suitably exotic from another culture and play-acting their beliefs. Marita, though, isn't sure how fair that is. Um, outside of the confines of Dharma Bombs the novel, Kurak and his beat contemporaries were genuinely invested in the study and practice of Buddhism. There's recent scholarship that argues that treating Kurak's practice of Buddhism as less than sincere because of his interweaving with American ideas is viewing it through a distinctly Western monotheistic lens and that Eastern religions can't really be considered in the same way because there is so much local and temporal variation in practice that there isn't a definable pure version of religion to use as a standard. And I believe that's actually a really interesting take and something that I think if we lived in a completely equal society would be something really enjoyable about investing in each other's cultures and sort of looking into each other's cultures. I think what gets me is there was a very likely, in fact definitely, um, Asian American and Native American people who were persecuted at exactly the same time for trying to pursue their own beliefs, which were seen as unwanted at that time. So that, that's probably where it gets me. It's a bit harder to stomach the cultural appropriation, knowing what was going on at the time in America as well. There's definite connections between the solitude that Ray seeks out sometimes and the solitude that Ted will face because of coming to London and the sort of irreparable parts of his marriage give him really no choice. So there is definite connections between what they both face. They both face quite a, an impactful journey in their lives. I also think that these journeys can be seen as sort of allegories or similar allegories to their mental states, uh, but with different results. You know, Jaffe suggests to Ray, the, the secret of this kind of climbing, said Jaffe, is Zen. Don't think, just dance along. It's the easiest thing in the world, actually easier than walking on flat ground, which is monotonous. The cute little problems present themselves at each step and you never hesitate and you find yourself on some other boulder you picked out for no special reason at all, just like Zen. Applying this as a state of thinking to Ray would be helpful to quiet his mind, but in Ted, jumping from boulder to boulder, he's missing the dangers, if you get what I mean. Um, and, and for anybody who isn't aware, the Zen, the sort of meaning, there's, there's various meanings to Zen in various cultures, but it is a Japanese school of Buddhism, emphasises the value of meditation and intuition rather than like worshipping scriptures or studying things or, or, or doing that very much like the Western religions. Um, I want to give an example of a sentence from page 64, and I'm just going to read it out exactly the way it's written and then we'll discuss what we think. Then suddenly, everything was just like jazz. It happened in one insane second or so. I looked up and saw Jaffe running down the mountain in a huge 20-foot leaps, running, leaping, landing with great drive of his booted heels, bouncing five feet or so, running, then taking another long, crazy, yelling, yodeling sail down the sides of the world. And in that flash, I realised, it's impossible to fall off a mountain, you fool. And with a yodel of my own, I suddenly got up and began running down the mountain after him doing exactly the same, huge leaps, the same fantastic runs and jumps, and the same space of about five minutes, I guess Jaffe Ryder and I, in my sneakers, driving the heels of my sneakers right into the sand rock boulders. I didn't care anymore. I was so anxious to get down out of there. Came leaping and yelling like mountain goats 
or I'd say Chinese lunatics of a thousand years ago, enough to raise the hair on the head of the meditating Morley by the lake, who said he looked up and saw us flying down and couldn't believe it. Now, I understand that Ray, in this moment, is probably feeling quite a lot of elation, but that is a hell of a long sentence for somebody who's supposed to be zen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Am I missing the point here? That's, a, that's not a quiet mind. As Marita points out, the uh, chapter that we see Ted reading on the plane, which is chapter 14, she says that Crax Ray has decided to pack up everything he needs that can be carried on his back and venture out in search of solitude and isolation. And Ted certainly has isolation, if not strictly solitude, ahead of him. He's travelling thousands of miles from home, as we later learn, to give his wife the space she needs and presumably make some sense of what's been happening in his life. And whether that's intentional or not, there's a lot of Ray Smith in Ted. Ted, like Ray, is folksy, friendly and optimistic, but not particularly keen study. She doesn't believe that Ray would nail down the offside rule either. Good one, Marita. What I saw in that chapter was the both stories tend to come from a place of hopefulness when I was reading it. You know, the sort of like packing up of all the things and the fact that, that Ray was so excited of all these sort of new things that he'd got for this journey, you know, it was like really putting it in place a hopefulness to it. And Ted, I believe the same because Beard is the one on the plane reading all the tactic books. Ted's just ready to go, you know, he's just there with his plan and he's happy to go with it. So I think there's a lot of hope in both of those, both of those stories. And I think Ray and Ted also share a skill that we could all learn from. Um, they don't get worked up about what other people might think about them. It doesn't really enter their heads. We know that Ray is, lives quite a different lifestyle from the majority of Americans and does not care what those people think about him. So how do, does Ray willingly and Ted perhaps accidentally go about discovering their truth or their spiritual journey or however you want to look at it? Bex raises a really good point and she says, when it came to meditating, I think Ted has had his own process for doing this. Uh, but it's really about avoidance for him, at least until he meets Dr Sharon. Like Ray, he's kind of a fake it until you make it type of person. And that makes a lot of sense to me, especially, you know, watching that scene on the plane. Um, he just, yeah, clearly worried about it because he can't sleep on the plane, but he's putting on that face of just sheer, we can do this, sheer believe. Bex also says that, you know, they definitely put on the happy face and perhaps they'll eventually believe it themselves. And that, that's a really good point. But that's not all there is to him. And he's trying to escape the imperfections of who he is. I agree. I think sometimes the rituals that Ray and Ted go through are not ways of coping so much, but ways of avoiding facing their emotions. Um, when Ray and Jaffe go up the mountain with the guy who has to go back, what's his name, Morley? Is it Morley? Mm. They're kind of judging Morley um, because, you know, he just doesn't really care. He's just like, I'll just go back to the car and sort the car. And they're like, what? He's like, I don't care. And Ray says about him, you know, I said, I think it doesn't make any difference to him anyway. He's just satisfied to wander around and forget things. I mean, isn't that like the point? Isn't that Zen? Isn't that what... Jaffe was earlier saying, but literally they, they go to sort of having a little laugh at this guy for doing exactly what they've suggested. So it's, it's dead weird. But anyway, uh, there are points when we see Ray's emotional state um, poke through. Like Ray's supposed to be zen, supposed to take what comes at him. But in the mo this moment, I think we see the actual Ray on page 63. I looked up at the peak. I was right there. 
I'd be there in five minutes. Only half an hour to go, yelled Jaffe. I didn't believe it. In five minutes of scrambling angrily upward, I fell down and looked up and the hill was just as far away. Also, I nudged myself closer to the ledge and closed my eyes and thought, oh, what a life is this? Why do we have to be born in the first place? And only so we can have our poor gentle flesh laid out to such impossible horrors as huge mountains and empty space. Once Ray achieved his goal, his whole outlook completely changes to the point where we're to learn it's supposed to be some unattainable enlightenment. Like uh, from here, Ah Jaffe, you taught me the final lesson that you can't fall off a mountain. Like sometimes a mountain is just a mountain, you know what I mean? But not for Ray, it's never just a mountain. And believe me, you can fall off a mountain. We literally have like rescue teams for that sort of stuff, so... He goes on to say, now, when I went around that ledge that had scared me, it was just fun and a lark and I just skipped and jumped and danced along and had really learned that you can't fall off a mountain. Whether you can fall off a mountain or not, I don't know, but I had learned that you can't. Ray is existing on a high from his achievements, but what happens when the highs are low? He says, with a heavy pack, it was difficult to control those thigh muscles that you need to go down a mountain, which is sometimes harder than going up. It's almost like the mountain is a sort of representative of Ray's mental state. Like the periods of highs and lows that are difficult to keep your footing on. But there are points when Ray is unable to keep the mask up. Same as Ted, effectively. Um, when Ray... I think we see this most when Ray is to speak at a lecture that Jaffe has arranged for him, where they'd previously read his poetry or something before, and Ray becomes belligerent. He drinks to excess, even though it is annoying his hero, Jaffe. He's in complete avoidance state. Now, is this brought on because of the lecture? Do we have a sort of imposter syndrome there? Do we have him worrying that he's not good enough to go near these people? Because this is the only time in, in the whole book that we really see Ray rise up against Jaffe to this extent. I feel like he's running away from something, and I think we can also see that in Ted. You know, like, Ted will go out his way to make sure that everybody else is okay, he doesn't want anybody else hurting, but he does that to run away from the things that happened to him in his past, you know? But the thing is, the difference, I think, between Ted and Ray is that Ted will be stressed and overwhelmed and be able to put on a very convincing happy face, which is something people with anxieties and past trauma learn very quickly. During the press meeting, which is sprung on Ted at the last minute, we do see glimpses of him having um, difficulties with stress and difficulties with being overwhelmed, but he keeps a happy, upbeat face, complimenting others around him, and it doesn't, you can see now, with hindsight looking back, you can see it affect him, but at the time, you wouldn't have, we wouldn't have picked up on that at all. The thing we have to think is, is that just another bunch of people that Ted doesn't want to let down, adding more stress to Ted to try and keep everybody else around him happy? And that's where the danger with that sort of toxic positivity comes in. Marita says that on his journey, Ted has to contend with the very Buddhist idea of releasing himself from attachment explicitly letting go of his marriage to Michelle. That's ostensibly for her happiness, but we are hoping ultimately for his as well. That I say in my post that he's conning himself, and she says that the author Kurak may well have been, as is Ted, and we all are to some extent. The real question might be if the approach they're taking is going to work for them, to allow them to arrive at the absence of suffering. For Kurak, influential though he was, it doesn't seem to have worked as he died from alcoholism. 
for Ted, the course he was on, compassionate for others without self-care, wasn't going to get him there. But we can hope he's changed tack enough to avoid a similar fate. I agree. I think that Dr Sharon has taught him enough coping mechanisms to do that and shown that he is deserving of giving himself as much care as he thinks everybody else deserves as well. And I'm hoping that's the case. Ray and Ted share a similar journey in the duality of their stories. Ray is actively looking for his purpose, while I would argue that Ted sort of comes across his as he goes. Ray is desperately looking for his purpose. And if you, if you read this on page 60... At one point, I had to scramble, like the others, on a narrow ledge around the butt of a rock, and it really scared me. The fall was a hundred feet, enough to break your neck. With another little ledge letting you bounce a minute preparatory to a nice goodbye 1,000 foot drop. The wind was whipping now, yet that whole afternoon was filled with old premonitions, old memories, and as though I'd been there before, scrambling on these rocks for the other purposes of more ancient, more serious, more simple... Beck says she went back and forth between seeing Ted in Jaffe and in Ray. Uh, he seemed to have elements of both, a bit lost, a bit determined to do what he considered the correct thing and a lot of melancholy hidden behind the face that he puts onto the world. And we can see this in the moments where Ray fantasises about having walked the trail in a previous life, where he says, but it seemed that I had seen the ancient afternoon of that trail from the meadow rocks and lupine posies to sudden revisits with the roaring stream with its splashed snag bridges and undersea greenness. There was something inexpressibly broken in my heart, as though I'd lived before and walked this trail under similar circumstances. This feels to me like someone trying to fairy tale their own sadness, in a way. It seems easier for Ray to over-intellectualise his thoughts, uh, like a metaphorical way to run away from them, um, in the same way he does in his life as well. The grass always seems greener for Ray. Wherever he is, the grass always does seem greener, whereas Ted seems more willing to make the best of the situation that he's currently in, even if that is to his own detriment. Something that Ray and Ted both share is an affinity for kindness and compassion. Ray states, One man practising kindness in the wilderness is worth all the temples this world pulls. And as Marita points out here, Ray's chief complaint with Zen Buddhism is that it values achieving insight over practising compassion. I may be way off base here again, but let me know in the comments. I feel like Ray's kindness comes from a place of elitism, as he talks about people who his group sees as lesser, such as Jaffe with his disdain for white kitchen goods, or when it comes to people with televisions... Uh, he states, only one thing I'll say for the people watching television, the millions and millions of the one eye, they're not hurting anyone while they're sitting in front of that eye. That feels like it comes from a place of pity rather than compassion. Whereas with Ted, we know where his compassion comes from. Um, it comes from a place of anxiety and worry that those around him may be hurting and that, you know, he might not notice. Um, we didn't get to see this, but when Ted was first inspecting the locker room, he got closer look at Sam Obasanya's uh, locker, and in it were like a Nintendo Switch and some chocolate bars and wrappers and things like that. Just signs that he maybe wasn't um, taking his role as seriously as he could be, and that, that there could be a reason for that. And Ted spotted that reason that Sam was struggling probably with homesickness. Um, when Nate is aggressively rude about Ted being on the pitch that first time, Ted doesn't respond negatively. He could have pulled the Do You Know Who I Am card. He could have really made Nate's life a misery for that. In fact, he apologises um, and starts to pay attention to Nate, virtually forcing him to give him his name. So, 
He's actively lifting me up and he hasn't even started the job yet, you know, do, do we see where that's coming from? I don't know if it really makes any difference as, as long as you're being compassionate as to why you are being compassionate. It's just something that I see, I would have, I would think that Ray's judgment sometimes overtakes his compassion a little bit. And like I say, that doesn't mean that either of them are wrong in any way. In fact, I believe a balance between Ray and Ted would be what's required. Uh, for example, they both share anger, which they both choose to avoid in different ways. We know Ted is angry at his dad, and we know that he's suffering trauma because of what happened, but we also know that his positivity can creep into toxicity when he isn't paying enough attention to how it's hurting him or how it's affecting him. When Ray is a fire lookout near the end of his journey, um, he mostly sells it as a spiritual awakening and how amazing it was and brilliant it was and how, you know, important an event it was. But glimmers of his frustrations shine through. He said, I'd be so mad I'd want to bite the mountain tops and would come into the shack and kick the cupboard and hurt my toe. So Ray is completely struggling to, you know, control his anger in those situations. Um, he really looked for the best in it. He sold it as if it was meant to be and perfect. But the true story is based on author Jack Kurak said he wanted to jump off the mountain based on the real life event. Because So where are the truths? Because I believe Ray can go and climb all the mountains he wants, but that's not where he's going to find his truth. To find his own truth, he has to look inside himself and address the things that are quite clearly hurting him. Although there are downsides to learning compassion through trauma the, the good thing about it is when you deal with the trauma the compassion doesn't just disappear you still have compassion for people um and i think that's where the difference between uh, ray and ted might lie photopunk jd says i also feel like i could see ted quoting the book as a way to inspire the team to reach new heights unafraid you can't fall off a mountain yeah, great. And given that everything Ted and Beard hung up in the office on their first day, they're all representative of underdogs. So because they believe in people is essentially how I see that. Marita raises an excellent point regarding the influence that Curac had in its time and thoughts on how Ted Lasso is doing the same. And this is a really interesting point. She says, and really, even if critics didn't anticipate it at the time, I think that at this point, the influence Curac and the Beats had on the practice of Buddhism in America is pretty clear. In a similar vein, Ted is looked down on within the world of the show for his lack of knowledge of the game, despite his uncanny ability and another undervalued aspect of his job, understanding and caring for people in a way that allows them to grow. What's interesting about that this dimension of the show has somehow morphed into something that has real-world influence, I completely agree. Like I've heard from so many people on Twitter saying, I, I've told people that I appreciate them more, or I've tried to be more understanding to people when they make mistakes and things like that, so... Yeah, that, I would agree with that. Um, also, she says that it's at least partially informing current conversations about how athletes are treated and what quality we expect from coaches, and that's another great point as well. I think that's probably more, no more clear than in Simone Biles' situation when at the Olympics she was unable to perform a couple of her um, performances due to her mental health or what turned out then to be the twisties. The, the explaining that she had to do of herself with that was absolutely ridiculous. So I think that the conversation is overdue about how we need to talk about everybody's mental health, not just athletes, but yeah, athletes do, do face a lot of pressure in the media. Lastly, I think that in terms of relationships between Ray, ja Ray and Jaffe and Ted and Beard, um, Liz said she sees a definite connection between the friendships of Ray and Jaffe. 
and Coach Beard and Ted Lasso and thinks that this book lends insight into the Beard Lasso origin story in some way. I really want to ask him about it, but he doesn't talk to to me at all. We we just kind of email and he uh, points at things. So Liz says maybe Beard was a lost, lonely sage travelling around when he met up with Ted, who had some of the answers to his unasked questions. Oh God, I hope Ted and Beard didn't have an orgy. Thanks, Liz, for that image. Marita says if we see Ray and Ted, then we can probably then cast Beard in Jaffe's role. He's the serious scholar of the pair, constantly reading and putting in the work with the relevant texts and serving as a guide to his, we his less well-informed friend, that's true. I'm kind of glad Beard doesn't talk, actually, because what if he's as insufferable as Jaffe? Marita goes on to say, Beard and Jaffe both clearly get up to a lot off-screen, but when they're in frame, they both have a supporting role anticipating their friend's needs. There's almost a telepathic link at times with the pair. That's true, actually, because sometimes I really do think that they're talking about me when they're not even talking, but okay. I did once hear Coach Beard say that he'd follow Ted anywhere. So, you know, unlike Ray following Jaffe all over the place, it's actually Jaffe following Ray, but yeah, I can definitely see it. I would love to sit around a cozy fire listening to the adventures of Ted and Beard when they were young. Hey, wait a minute. If they knew each other when they were kids, what do you think Ted called Beard before Beard had a beard? Or is he just, like, always had a beard? Anyway, sorry. Marita does make a good point, though, saying Ray and Jaffe are climbing Matterhorn. They feed off each other. But Jaffe can clearly make it on his own, and she's not so sure that Ray would get there without Jaffe, and I agree with that. So that does make Marita think, how would uh, Ted fare in his journey without beard? I think, yeah, that would be an entirely different journey. I don't think he would have lasted as long as he has. And I really love this take from Bex that maybe Ted loved this book because it was something that reminded him of his dad. Perhaps it was his father's favourite book. Um, Ted's father, from what little we know, seemed to do good for others but was unable to find happiness in himself. He did not think he was good enough. Maybe he read this book to relate to that. Maybe he read this book to try and find answers. Maybe it's Ted's way of trying to connect with his father or trying to understand him now that he's gone. Or maybe it's a comfort book. I really like that. Yeah, we've all got comfort books, comfort TV shows, comfort everything. So that was all your thoughts on The Dharma Bums by Jack Kurak. And we are now going to be moving on to Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. And we are going to be starting that very soon, but I just want to give you a heads up so that you can get ahead of the game. I'll keep you informed and release another video on Twitter or on, on YouTube to let you know when we're starting. And thank you very much for all your... Honestly, this video wouldn't have been half as good without all your comments because I'm not that smart, you know. So I'm basically sitting on the grass with Will juggling sports water bottles while everybody else is doing stuff. But I'm a really good personal assistant. Okay, bye. <laughs>